0: following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, well. oh. Hello. I'll wait for Jake to come back in. You can find your way to your seat. You can grab your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Before we begin, I want to just draw your attention to a couple resources we have for you there where you picked up your worship guide. Uh, There are three different reading plans. Uh, Well, there are two different reading plans and one's a sermon schedule. Uh, this smaller one here is the sermon schedule. This is we're, we're ending our series, our, our, three, sort of, um, our three, three topical series uh, this morning. And we're beginning next week and over the whole course of the summer, um, our Psalms series. So the, uh, from June all the way through August, we'll be looking at a different psalm each Sunday. And so if you want to be able to be prepared and read along with us, grab that on your way out. Stick that in your Bible. And, and prepare yourself just by reading that week or earlier that, uh, that morning before you come and prepare your heart that way. So that's important for you. There's also two other reading plans. One for uh, the faint of heart and one for the less faint of heart. Both are Psalms reading plan. And this longer one is reading the whole book of Psalms in 30 days. That's five Psalms a day. There are no makeup days. So you would do that every day. Technically, there's 31 days, so you can uh, you have one makeup day. But five psalms a day. This is really, if you do this for a whole month, and especially if you do this for three months in a row, your grasp and your perspective on the book of Psalms would radically change. So I would encourage you at least one month this summer. Try reading the Psalms and 30-day reading plan. Uh, it tells you what day of the month that you're on, and then the psalms that you'll read. You'll notice the pattern. Psalm, on the first day of the month, you read Psalm 1, and then you'll add 30 till you read 5. So Psalm 1, Psalm 31, 61, 91, and 121. If you do that all month, you'll have read all 150 psalms in 30 days. If you don't want to go for all 5, especially on the, towards the end of the month, we have to read Psalm 119 along as well as four other psalms, you can do the psalm in 90-day reading plan. That's this sort of uh, two-sided one. And that has 14 weeks, not a full 14 weeks, but uh, 14 weeks, six days out of the week. So we'll give you Sunday off since we'll come and study the Psalms together. But Monday through Saturday, reading one or two Psalms a day. And again, if you do this over the course of summer, not only will you uh, be richer in your your experience of studying the Psalms together, but just in your study of the Bible overall. So I to encourage you to pick up one or both of these on your way out as well as the sermon schedule. If you have an extra one or you don't, if there's no more extra that, come see me after service and I'll, I'll print one out for you. Okay, so that being said, for 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read from verse 6 through verse 8. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we now ask God for your help and your guidance this morning in the study of your word. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open, and that your spirit would illuminate this text to us. Above all, Lord, help us to live faithfully in light of the gospel which it teaches and leads us to. We give thanks to you and pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love weddings. I... When I'm invited to weddings, my wife and I go, and and one of the most important and satisfying things for me is to obviously celebrate the, the joining of two families into one. But I've noticed a change as I've gotten older that as I'm watching the ceremony and enjoying the reception with the bride and the groom and all the guests that are there, more and more of my thoughts, year by year, are taking up less with the perspective and the view of the bride and the groom themselves, and more and more with the father and mother of the bride and the groom. But what it must mean for them on that day. My own wedding was over 11 years ago. And though we celebrate every year, prayed fully, by God's grace, that day, more and more I think about my own children's wedding. And what it would be like to see my own daughter be led down the aisle my own son be wed to the woman he loves. And during the reception, I imagine myself sitting back at the table after the obligatory father-daughter dance, where I sit back and I enjoy the fruit of Brittany and I's labor. I think about not only the new family that starts now before me, but maybe the family that will continue on beyond me fast-forwarding beyond the wedding day into family reunions and Christmases and Thanksgiving with my family and extended family and, by God's grace and, Lord willing, their children and perhaps one day even my own great-grandchildren. This thought becomes more and more present as you get older about what it means to live on and what it means to leave a legacy for those around you. And I think this taps into a, a, a... broader and more profound question that all of us tend to ask each other one time or another. It's whether what we do at any given point truly matters to God. The work that you're called to do right now is it going to pay off at some point in the future? I see the, the large families at weddings and gatherings and celebrations enjoying the presence of one another. Grown children honoring, loving, celebrating their father and mother, and I look over at my kid, who just at this moment happens to refuse to eat their meal, and I'm wondering, how do I get there without losing all of my hair? Some of us, they still lose their hair, but it happens. Is what I'm doing now worth it to get me to that goal, that vision of the future, Not only that, I think, is important and worthwhile, but would honor God. We're so often plagued by the question of whether or not what we do really matters to God, whether you're a mother struggling to homeschool their children, or you're a worker in a dead-end job doing the same thing over and over again, or even if you have relative success and flourishing in your own business and life, but wondering if the small details of your life are really going to amount to anything important or if you're still going through the motions. Does any of this really, truly matter to God and lead you to the place where God wants you to go? That question plagues all of us. The point of our last two messages, and this one particularly, has been to get us to see with crystal clarity that God has called each one of us To our particular circumstances, no matter what they are, how difficult they are, or how pleasing they may be to you, that God has called you to that circumstance so that you would be faithful to it and in it now. And if He has called you to it, then it is good for you. And that you are obligated, in honor to God, to receive that calling and to be faithful in that calling until the Lord visits a new one upon you, changes your vocation, calls you elsewhere, It is our goal then to remind each other of that calling to your singleness or to your marriage, to your work, to your freedom, to your role as a carpenter, as a stay-at-home mom, a gardener, a CEO, or otherwise. That calling as a Christian is to live out the gospel in complete faithfulness no matter what. We talked about the work of contentment in your calling. That it may not have been the life and the calling you would have given to yourself, but God, who is good and always faithful, He has called you. It is the Lord who has assigned you. And so contentment and humility must be the permeating character of your life. Last week, as Pastor Jake taught us, it is the stewardship then of that calling, leaning into that calling so that we no longer live in anxiety and pressure, that we are failing but rather in complete freedom, being rich towards God, giving then our whole lives to him in the midst of that calling rather than trying to climb and scratch our way out of the box we feel God has put us into. This Sunday we're going to end our series on this idea of calling by examining Paul's life and his own reflection of his calling, his faithfulness, and what God has managed to accomplish Then, but the point is here if we are not convinced of our calling brothers and sisters if you are not sure that God has called you and convinced of it you will not persevere in faithfulness and in service and in contentment but instead you will hobble along in frustration and anxiety trapped by your own mistrust of God's goodness and purposes for your life because at that moment they don't seem to be working out for your good rather we are called to lean in, to confirm our calling. Our goal this morning is to persevere in faithfulness in our callings, sustained by the knowledge that what you do does matter to God. And beyond this, a reward awaits the faithful. So as we consider 2 Timothy We need to first remind ourselves of the context of Paul's writing to his protege and his son in the faith. 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul is writing or that we have preserved by Paul. And he writes to Timothy who is very close and dear to his heart. And he's writing to impart spiritual counsel and wisdom and pastoral insight to Timothy. As he senses that his own life and his own ministry is coming to a close. It's nearing their end. Paul, in in, in a sense, is passing the torch to Timothy. And in our passage here in chapter 4, he pauses to offer a brief reflection of his own calling and his life in order to promote encouragement in Timothy's life. The reason for this, of course, is that Timothy needs encouragement. Not only is he young, but he's, he's new in ministry. He's followed Paul along for some time, but Paul has sent him To Ephesus, to deal with some really difficult things, to lead a, a hurt and broken and sinful, backbiting congregation. And Timothy needs encouragement. He needs counsel and wisdom. And Paul knows just how difficult the path that lays before Timothy really is. He needs to continue to be faithful in that particular calling. In the next coming years, the battle would rage on and Timothy would need encouragement to sustain himself in the battle. And so Paul, he recalls and reflects on his own faithfulness, not in a boastful way, but humbly, how God had sustained him and what God had accomplished by doing this. He's intending to encourage Timothy in his and subsequently in our own faith, in our ministries and in our callings. Notice, to do this, he draws on several images and metaphors to frame the perspective of a long and faithful ministry over time, over the inevitable hardships and dilemmas that come our way. Each verse is is offering a a different mental image for us to consider. A drink offering poured out in verse 6. That of a fight and of a race there in verse 7. And of a victory crown in verse 8. In addition to this, each verse also moves from a reflection on Paul's present circumstances to a review of his past performance before landing on a triumphal note that looks to the future. So Paul is drawing on mental imagery, figures of speech, analogies to describe what God has done in his life and how Paul has performed faithfully over the years, reflecting first presently on his circumstances then looking backwards to his own faithfulness, and then landing on a triumphal note that looks to the future. And we're going to explore each of these in turn. And the reason we're doing this is to remind ourselves that Paul lays out here a framework for our own understanding and perspective of our specific calling and vocations. How we might now live so that we may share in the satisfaction of our callings near the end of our lives. Paul here is satisfied in what he has given to God by God's own grace and strength, that we too then would be satisfied in our calling near the ends of our lives and our ministries and for what future that we might strive and to what reward we might look. These are the questions that will concern us this morning. So look at verse 6, Paul's present suffering. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul writes this from a Roman jail cell. He may have some sense of the outside world, but he's in a dark, damp, muddy, and cold cell. In fact, he asks Timothy to bring a cloak because he's old, fragile, and cold. But as he reflects on what God has done in his life, he's encouraged. And he recognizes that he has been poured out as a drink offering and that the time of his departure has come. He begins with the acknowledgement, of course, that his life and ministry are closing in. And this is a reality that each one of us may face, that there will be a time where your life will be over. We cannot live as if we will go on living forever. There will be a time... When all of our money is spent and all of our influence is spent and all of our work is done. Paul recognizes this time for him is rapidly approaching. Not as a morbid acceptance of what we all eventually must face but rather as a reminder to Timothy that his death is only a necessary conclusion to a life in service and worship to God. He's really framing this not as something to be sad about, but that is necessary in the complete journey of faithfulness that God has called him to. In Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, to go and preach to the Gentiles, he has done so, and he recognizes that calling now is beginning to end. He's reminding Timothy that this is only a conclusion to a life of service and worship to God. And notice the language he uses this. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, he's mentioned before in other letters, this image or language of a drink offering. He says in Philippians 2, chapter 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. That's what he writes to the Philippians. Note the reality in that passage of being poured out was for Paul something that was as of yet to happen. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, I would be glad. But that has shifted now. Because by the time he writes to Timothy, that reality has already begun. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. This, of course, refers specifically to Paul's death. Death literally the pouring out of his life in service to God for the sake of others like Timothy, like the Ephesians, like the Philippians. And this is why Paul mentions his impending departure there in the second part of verse six. This is another reference to the book of Philippians. He says in chapter one, verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two, that is to stay or to be with the Lord, for my desire is to depart, same word, and to be with Christ, for that is far better. So he desires to depart and to be with Christ, but for the time being resolved to remain faithful to God's calling. But again, as he closes his letter to Timothy, the last of his in the New Testament, he knows now that the time to stay is past, and the time to go draws near. He says he's being poured out as a drink offering as the time of departure has come. This image of a drink offering, you may know, is to recall the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which were often to be accompanied with the pouring out of wine or some other liquid that symbolizes blood, or in reality, life poured out, given in complete devotion to God. So when those who would come into the temple and into the ta- tabernacle to make sacrifices to God would often associate and accompany those sacrifices with the pouring out of a drink offering the complete emptying in devotion to God in service and in worship. So not only here does Paul intend to conjure up an image of sacrifice in service of God, but he demonstrates how this sacrifice is actually wed to worship. A drink offering was an offering made in worship to God along with the sacrifice that was brought. So there is both a sacrifice and a worship that is happening here, as Paul says, I am being poured out as a drink offering for you. This is a sacrificial outpouring of life. And it is life as worship. And there's another place in the New Testament where Paul makes this explicit. In the letter of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he urges this very same kind of life. He says "In there in verse 12, 1 and 2 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see the connection there? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul's appeal is that all of your life as a Christian called to exercise maturity and faithfulness in whatever circumstance is to be lived out and to be carried out as an offering of worship to God. His life was poured out like that of wine upon the altar of a worship sacrifice. There in chapter 12, we are exhorted to present our bodies to God on the altar of worship. He's giving the image that we climb up on that stone tablet to be consumed by God in devotion, to be made holy, to live a life that is acceptable to the Lord. It is to be consumed by God, that He would delight in our offering. This is what Paul intends to be, a life lived in worship of God. He does not say, take part of your body and present it as a sacrifice. Take your job and present it as a sacrifice. Take your marriage, present it as a sacrifice. He says, present your bodies. This, of course, means all of you, who you are. You as husband, wife, father, mother, friend, neighbor, daughter, sister, presents your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So all of life is to be carried out as an offering of worship to God. And this is just what Paul says he has done, that he is being poured out as a drink offering now that the time of his departure has come. And so friends, our circumstances, however difficult or unideal they may be, they should not and they do not hinder our worship of God. If all of life is an altar upon which we give ourselves to God as living sacrifices, then we, friends, must be prepared to fully be poured out in worship to Him. We must be, like Paul, a drink offering that is chipped over and being poured out in worship to God, no matter our circumstances, which means whether you are pressed, whether you are prosperous, whether you are grateful or whether you are in dire circumstances, your life in that moment is nonetheless to be offered as a worship to God. You must be prepared in whatever means, in whatever circumstance, to be poured out as a living sacrifice to God. What does it mean to be poured out? I think in layman terms, we can say it this way. It means to spend and be spent for God. To be poured out as a drink offering means to spend and be spent for God. That all of our resources and all of our thoughts and all of our energies are being directed to the worship of God. Even if the final drop of your lives is not to fall to the ground until many, many decades later, It is the willingness, indeed the necessity, to now be tipped over so that your life may flow in praise to God. And we begin now to give everything to God in worship so that at the end of our own ministries and lives, as we reflect on that moment, we may say with Paul, I have been poured out as a drink offering. I have given myself fully. I have spent all that I have and all that I am And service to that end. To the worship of God as a living sacrifice. I have climbed upon the altar. And I have withheld nothing. There is not a drop of energy or resource left in me. I have been poured out for God. This of course is not new to Paul. The idea of spending himself for the sake of God and others. He understood that whatever he gave to God. God gave first much more to him. It was God who spared not his own son. He gave what was most precious to him for the sake of Paul's own life, though he would say the chief of sinners, the least deserving. It was Jesus who, Paul would say in Philippians, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant for our sake. It was, as Jesus would say at the Last Supper, his own blood which was poured out for sin. It is Jesus' sacrifice which pleased God. He himself was first able to go and offer himself fully, completely, and perfectly to God. Where Paul now is simply following in his master's footsteps to spend and be spent for the worship of God as a living sacrifice. So Paul is reflecting on his present struggles and he says, I've given everything I have the Lord the question we must ask ourselves are Are we prepared to give everything we have for the Lord are you now in a position to be fully emptied of your life if need be that you may offer praise and worship acceptable to God he goes on in verse 7 to discuss his own past faithfulness he says I have fought the good fight I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. This is a popular and for good reason passage that reminds us of the faithfulness needed to arrive at the end with satisfaction and with pleasure and what God has done in us. And Paul has no need to defend his legacy to Timothy. Timothy knows Paul quite well, yet he nevertheless demonstrates what a commitment to being poured out might look like and what might ultimately accomplish. And the image here moves from ritual that is, sacrifice, to practical, as he talks about the fight and the race and contending for the faith. Notice what he says here, I have fought the good fight. He is engaged in a fight of faith in which he has come out victorious. He'll say it in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, one of the verses we read from this morning in our call to worship, or a New Testament reading, Paul says, no... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. This isn't just we have victory. The word there, more than conquerors, is a compound word in the Greek. It's a new word that Paul made up that really means hyper conquerors. Uber is really the transliteration of the Greek. Uber conquerors. Over what? Over sin and death and famine and the sword of the enemy through Christ. Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so three things should be noted about the fight that Paul has entered into, in which he encourages Timothy in his own fight. First, that we are to engage in the good fight. It is the good fight that he engages in. What is the good fight? It is the cause of Christ. It is the proclamation of the Gospel. It is the testimony that speaks to the worthiness and the beauty of Jesus and the Gospel as treasure above all things. He has engaged in that battle to let the world know in His life, even as He has poured out, that Jesus is everything. That's the fight He faced. And this is a fight not against the world, or our neighbors, or against the culture, Certainly not against one another. The fight is a fight of faith against unbelief. It's against the true enemies of God's kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 6, he speaks of the need to arm yourself with the armor of God because our war is not against flesh and blood, against the principalities and the powers of darkness. So we must fight against, in faith, unbelief that dares us not to trust in the promises of God despite our circumstances telling us otherwise. To fight against the true enemies of God who would lay snares and temptation and traps that you might get caught in sin and be unable to be set free. And so friends, fighting then is necessary. You do not have the luxury to stay on the sidelines. You are engaged in the fight, whether you know it or not. You are either fighting, or you are losing. But there is no neutrality. John Owen famously said, "Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you." You must constantly, get, constantly be engaged in the fight against sin and unbelief and the temptation to mistrust and to doubt God's goodness and plans and purposes for your life. And if anyone had a reason to doubt God's goodness in his life, it was Paul. He was beaten. Shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead countless times. Even the Lord seemed to be against him at times. And yet he, in faithfulness, chose over and over and over again to believe by faith in God's promises. He fought against that unbelief, and he overcame. He became more than conquerors through him who loved him. There's another analogy he uses. He says, I have completed the race. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, he says. The idea here is that he has completed the course. He has made it to the end. He's not bragging about his time, making it to the finish line. He's not bragging about all the obstacles he was able to overcome. He is simply declaring that he had made it to the end. He has crossed the finish line. I have finished the race. This idea of a race or a course that was set before him has happened several times in his letters elsewhere. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he speaks to the Ephesian elders. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's an apt analogy of the Christian life to view it as a race, a course on which we are set on that we are called to finish. A few thoughts in passing on the race of the Christian life. First, we do not set the course but are simply called to run it. You may not know whether left or right, the course takes you into poverty or to prosperity, into suffering or into triumph. You cannot see beyond the bend or over the hill. God knows the course. Your job is to stay on it. It is the reminder of Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, she was reminded over and over again to stay on the narrow path, that it is straight and it leads to the celestial city. And though you may not be able to see through the fog or through the distance what it means to receive at the other end, if you remain on the path that God has set, if you run the course that He has given you, you will make it faithfully to the end. Secondly, this race is not a sprint, but a marathon. The point is not how quickly you can cross the finish line, but that you should run with endurance the entirety of your course, you see. It is not about how much money you accrue, by the end of your race, or how many fans cheer you on by the time you get there, it is simply that you would arrive where God has called you to go. It is not a sprint, but a marathon. You need not know how fast or far or behind other Christians are in the race along with you. When able, encourage and receive encouragement. But God has called you to run the race with endurance. This is a marathon and not a sprint. Lastly, there are no shortcuts. You cannot circumvent the difficult terrain the course may lead you. There is no way to hop on a bus and to forget the trotting and hiking up the difficult mountainous terrain that suffering and difficulty will inevitably bring in our life. You cannot leave the course and find your way around to the other side. The course is set You are on it. He says, I have finished the race. Friends, the question is, are you prepared to see your work to the very end? This is not to encourage you by your own strength to keep going, to press on, to pick up yourself by your bootsteps, but rather to know that God who has set the course will bring you through to it. What does Hebrews say? that you are surrounded by a crowd of witnesses who has gone before you, has proven that there is an end in sight, and that you too may faithfully run with endurance the race set before you. Again, the Hebrew writer reminds us that Jesus is our model in this. Just as for Paul, who looked to Jesus who offered himself and poured himself out, so too does the author of Hebrews remind us that Jesus also had a race that was set before him. And he endured the cross because of joy that was set before him. So Paul says, I have run the race, I've finished it because he, like Christ, has seen the joy that would be set before him even in the darkest of his days. He has fought the fight, the good fight, he has finished the race. He says, lastly, I have received or contended for the faith. I have kept the faith. Part of this keeping means that he has held fast to it. He has not strayed. He has taught others. He has understood the doctrinal implications of the gospel and he has built his life on it, justification by faith and not by works of the law. That is that is Paul in a nutshell. And he preaches that. He preaches it so hard that even his enemies think that he must have thrown out the rest of the Bible in the first place, that it is all grace, that none of us are justified by works. He has held fast to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus' death provides atonement for sin, and it is not in the keeping of the law that we are justified, but by faith and faith alone. So part of keeping the faith means holding fast to it, to knowing it and believing it and not straying from it. But another part of keeping the faith means to contend for it. Think of Jude, verse 3, who urges his readers to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that there is a defending, a coming to the aid of the faith, which not only are we to hold fast, but also to contend and commend to the world. I think this keeping of the faith is a way to describe both the fighting of the good fight and the running of the race that's set before us by keeping the faith, not straying and contending. Because both in fighting and in running, which are the images that Paul uses, the need to stay mindful and engage with the current task, your calling, as well as to prepare yourselves to defend against any would-be distractions or obstacles, it's crucial. And so you have to be willing to keep the faith and fight and contend for the gospel. So this is important. Listen, faithfulness to the path of your calling, the course on which you have been called and placed by God to run, ensures the victory of faith over your circumstances in the cause of Christ. If you are faithful in the path of your calling, which God has placed you on to run with endurance, your faithfulness will ensure the victory of faith over the circumstances in the cause of Christ. This is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to understand about his own life. Paul says he has finished the race and has kept the faith. Timothy must do likewise. And then in verse 8... Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, what's left for me is the crown I receive. The crown of righteousness, which Christ, who is the righteous judge, will award to me on that day when he returns. And not only to me, but to all of those who have also loved his appearing. And so it's to this victory, this victory that Paul then turns to offer encouragement to Timothy and his own calling. Really, he's continuing the metaphor of a race or of a combat by referencing the crown, typically made of laurel or olive leaves that are placed on the head of the victors. They're awarded at the end of their successful trials, their race. This is what Paul says awaits him now that his own race is complete a crown of righteousness. Again, a few brief notes on this. First, it is God who accomplishes righteousness in the life of the believer. God is accomplishing the righteousness in the life of the believer. Paul's righteousness is not earning him salvation or a place with God in heaven. Paul's ministry has been based on the fact that it is his faith in Christ, in Christ's righteousness alone, which grants him such a privilege. So God accomplishes righteousness in the life of a believer. But even Paul's own righteousness, which he says God will reward, the righteousness of his own life, the ability to finish well the race and to fight the good fight, to be poured out as a drink offering, even that righteousness comes from God. It is God who has kept him in the struggle. It is God who has firmed up and shored up his belief in the promises of Scripture. God has accomplished all of the righteousness in God's, in the believer's life. Even Paul's righteousness comes from God. Secondly, this crown that Paul says believers receive when Jesus returns is the well done of a believer's service. In other words, it's, it's God's approval of our worship. Our worship, of course, being a life lived in service and devotion to God until the very last drop. It is that well done, my good and faithful servant, that all Christians long to hear the Father in heaven. It's the validating of all the suffering and persecutions that Christians throughout the world will experience. It is the approval of our worship to climb on the altar and die to ourselves even when it cost us greatly and dearly to do so. God will give the crown of life and of righteousness. But third, really, in another sense, the crown of righteousness represents the full and perfect and permanent state of righteousness which we will all inherit in Christ, where the body is made to be imperishable, where we are redeemed and glorified forever with Christ. We are in a state of full and perfect and permanent righteousness with Christ in heaven. And that is the great and sure motivation of the Christian's life. This reward of that crown of righteousness, both to be rewarded and thought well of by God in a life of service and worship to Him, and the fullness of that righteousness which we long for, which we cannot experience fully in this life, It's the treasure that motivates Christians to continue to run the race. It is that joy which was set before Christ and which is set before us. This is how at the end of Paul's life, as the last drop of his blood is poured out in worship to God, his death is not really the end for him. He says, the time of my departure has come. This is, quite literally in the Greek, a heading home like a ship that is unmoored from the port that sails to its home country or like a camp that pulls up the stakes of its tent to pack up and to begin the journey back to their own country. This is not the end for Paul. He departs from this world to the next, but his joy and his love does not end. He receives his reward and walks into the fullness of the righteousness which Christ has procured for him. This reward is not simply for the high achievers. It's not simply for the super apostles like Paul. He says it's for all Christians who have loved his, that is Christ's, appearing. He encourages Timothy by his own words that the crown of righteousness which Paul will assume inherit, Timothy likewise will inherit if he keeps the faith. If he too, like Paul, fights the good fights and finishes the race. And all those who love his appearing will also inherit such a crown of righteousness. But what does it mean to love the appearance of Christ? Two things, and then we'll end. It means, firstly, to long for the appearance of Christ. To long for it. To eagerly anticipate it. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul reminds his readers there, that they are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an eager anticipation of Jesus' return to usher in the fullness of righteousness which He has secured for us on the cross. Paul will also say in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. But, O Lord, come. That's the cry of Maranatha. It's an eager outpouring, that Christ would come, longing and waiting for Jesus' return. Long for the appearing of Christ. Of course, the famous last words of the book of Revelation as the Bible closes is this in Revelation 20 to 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What does it mean to love the appearance? It means, firstly, to long for it to eagerly anticipate it, to see it as the treasure that is yours and will come upon Christ's own will. But it means, secondly, to live for the appearing of Christ. We must not only long for it, but in the meantime, we must live for the appearing of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 4, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were one, called to one hope that belongs to your call. He's saying this calling that you are to persevere in, you are to live in. Not simply wait for Christ to come and make all things new again, that is your eager longing and expectation, but in the meantime, you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 2 Peter verses 1 through 13, he says, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder to make your calling and election sure, to walk in certain ways that honor Christ and that are in line with the gospel. In Romans 8, verse 30, this beautiful chain of salvation, he says, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, the link between justification and glorification is how we live in service and honor to the calling of God. So friends, the reminder that Paul is giving to Timothy and that he's giving to us this morning is that God has called you to a particular task. He has assigned to each one of us your path in the course in which you are to run. You are not to run another person's race or to concern yourself overly with another, but rather to be faithful to your own calling and to your own task. You must content yourself with what the Lord has given you. You must fight and finish, and you must chiefly look to the reward that awaits all the faithful, trusting not in your own strength, but in the strength the Lord provides. For the gift of the Spirit is yours that keeps you and sustains you. Ultimately, we look to the author and the founder of our own faith, Jesus, who was himself poured out as a drink offering, whose own blood was shed for the atonement for sin, whose own body was broken that we may be one in him, who himself set aside and emptied himself of the divine prerogative and became a a servant to die in obedience to God. We look to him He models faithfulness for us. We look to Paul, who also looked to Christ. We consider his final words to be poured out and to give ourselves so that we may be glad that we have given ourselves, that we have spent and been spent for the sake of Christ and others. May God help us do this. Lord, we pray for your help in this endeavor, for none of us have the strength within ourselves to do this perfectly, completely or sustainably, but O Lord, you have given us your spirit to draw our attentions constantly back to your gospel, to the person of Jesus who has done this, who was perfectly obedient, who was in full submission to your will, and who made a way by his own blood and body to redeem us from our own sin. And so we pray that we would consider what it means to join the fight, to engage in this good fight, to run the course that you have laid out for us with joy and with endurance, and that we would do so by keeping the faith, not straying from it, but contending for it, looking, eagerly longing, and anticipating your return when Christ comes again and establishes his kingdom forever and we receive the crown of righteousness, of joy and everlasting life, when our bodies are restored and made new, and we sit around the table with Christ and others, giving thanks to God for the work in us and satisfied in our own lives as we offer ourselves a sacrifice to you. We pray, Lord, for help. In Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.